0: to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. All
1: right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you and welcome. We're starting just a couple of minutes early. I'm Richard Parker, I'm a senior fellow here at the center and Uh, This is our first fall gathering of the Shorenstein Brown Bag lunches. We hold them every Tuesday. Next Tuesday, you're invited to come here, Rick Hertzberg uh, of the New Yorker, former editor of the New Republic and uh, a wonderful uh, journalist uh, and uh, former fellow here at the Center. Uh, A couple of housekeeping things. If your cell phone is on, turn it off now, please. Uh, second, during the Q&A, which will follow after our speaker concludes, uh, uh, please identify yourself before you ask the question, and students have first priority on questions, and I will identify students who indicate by raising their hand or otherwise uh, to start the questioning off. So our guest today is Robin Sproul, and I'm delighted to have Sproul her back. Ms. owl, Sproul. <laughs> always <laughs> tell you. <laughs>
2: We've known each other a while. You say potato (laughs) and I say potato. I'm
1: from Midwestern parents, so come to us. Robin was a fellow here uh, back in 2007. Was a wonderful colleague, and uh, we're delighted to have her back here again today. Uh, As I'm sure all of you know, she's uh, been the vice president and Washington bureau chief of ABC uh, News for uh, more than 20 years, and. Uh, we were delighted to get word just a few days ago that ABC had finally, in its wisdom, announced mm-hmm. that they were promoting her to Vice President of Public Affairs for the entire network. So a small round of congratulations to Thank you. Thank you. For this. Uh, In her capacity, she's in charge of the largest of the network's bureaus. She oversees all of the Washington stories covered and uh, is the network's liaison to the federal government, which will yield a set of interesting stories, I think, based (laughs) on a few things that we discussed earlier. Uh, She's been named in Washington as one of the 100 most influential people in Washington. Washingtonian Magazine named her as one of the most powerful women. And she's gotten the First Amendment award from the RTNDA. She's been with ABC since the early 1980s, when there were no prohibitions on hiring child labor. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, Actually, and, since the mid-70s. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, and she's won Emmys, DuPont's, George Foster Peabody Awards, Sigma Delta Chi. It goes on and on and on. And I could keep filling out the resume, but I'd rather hear Robin speak, as I'm sure all of you would. So.
2: Miss Owl, would you please? <laughs> yes, that? I would, Richard. A learned man. And I will be the fool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, I, um, I'm talking today about uh, covering news in a changing media landscape. And it is, I, I think everybody in this room knows the times mm-hmm. we're in. These are very exciting times. But I, it, it, as much as I, I call my, twenty, I, I just finished as 21 and a half years as the Washington Bureau chief for ABC on the television and the overall bureau itself, radio, digital, television. I called that the typewriters to Twitter era, and as I handed the baton over to my um, 31-year-old successor, I said, Twitter to what? Like, what is what happens next? It's an incredibly exciting time, but... If anything, the, the pace of change has been so rapid over my period of time there. I thought, you know, we were moving rapidly when I had to get the typewriters out of their offices and get them on word processors, and <laughs> we had a group printer you couldn't print in your office. And I, I kept thinking, all oh, this is going so rapidly. It's just, like, it, it's it's more rapid now than it's been in, in ages. And every political cycle, if you talk to, um, people who run campaigns and watch particularly presidential campaigns. Uh, David Pluff is somebody who works a lot with ABC now, though he's just signed on with Uber. Change, change, change. <laughs> uh, and um, he, he talked about the digital uh, revolution that the Obama campaign in 2008 started, not applicable, applicable in 2012, and it isn't how you'd run a 2016 campaign. Everything from the way you mine data to how you leverage data how you market to individuals how you say i'm going to get that guy in the brown house in the middle of that block who hasn't voted in the last two elections but is passionate about this and is sharing this i'm going to send somebody over there to his house and get him to go to the polling place that's we're at that micro level now which is incredibly exciting but has all kinds of lessons for how we cover news and how we reach people so I I would say in the last several years a lot of what we focused on in the very much a legacy news organization that is ABC is how are we going to get news to you wherever you are. That was our big thing. We're going to reach you, you know, on your phone. We're going to reach you in your computer. We're going to find you. That's not really where we are at this moment in time. It's much more okay, we're going to find you, but how are we going to get, how are we going to? break through this fire hose of information that's coming at you? How are we going to reach you in a way that you are going to want to receive it? So it's a very different sort of a challenge. So we have to figure out how to collect news differently, how to tell it differently, but how to still sort of fulfill the mandate we have as, as a legacy journalism organization. How do we get inside your brains, through the fire hose, giving you the information that's going to break through um, everything that you're exposed to. We are all living now And hi Graham, (laughs) glad you could come. Um, We are living in real time. We are living in the now. We are plugged in, we're multitasking, we're talking to each other all day long in smaller and smaller and smaller bites, just in my own personal life. I think you can probably relate to this. I have a 29 and 31-year-old. I used to periodically talk to them on the phone and then occasionally we'd send emails and now any thought that pops into their head in the middle of the day i get that little bite of a text and i'm this i'm adapting to that too and i know that's how my audience is receiving information and news personally (laughs) all day and that has lessons for us as we move forward we swerve in our brains now we swerve and digital natives swerve differently than um, some of the older generation which I am a member (laughs) but we swerve from one topic to another there's been a lot of criticism lately about uh, evening news programs and ours is one of them for and I think it's mostly critics versus the audience Um, you know you have this depressing news story on about a beheading video and then almost immediately you're you're looking at a weather report and a tornado that's just smashed a house and then there's an adorable baby in utero with a thumbs up and that's the pace at which people are receiving and moving and the stickiness of that beheading video is just simply not what it was you know a couple of years ago even it's not it's just moving so quickly and in this social media world in which we live everyone Each of us is a reporter of sorts. Every one of us is a news gatherer. More and more of us are news photographers. Um, Half of social network users share or repost news stories, images or video, and one in ten now actually post news videos that they take themselves. Those numbers are just going like that. I mean, just recently you've seen it with the um, Malaysian plane that was shot down in, in Ukraine, in Ferguson. The graphic images of back to Ukraine of bodies in that field, of body parts in that field, of personal possessions, whether they were coming from reporters who got there or citizens who were there, these are images that are completely unforgettable. And, and the reporters are trying to figure out how to cope with this too because a professional reporter who was there might be sorting through all these things to figure out what do I, you know, what is the taste, what, what is the, how do I reach people, how will I get to a story tonight or a story in an hour or tomorrow mornings, whatever. And now it's um, what the NBC News reporter ran into in Gaza, who um, was a witness to the children on the beach um, who were killed by an explosion and immediately tweeted out that that this was a horrific thing and it was a natural human and emotional reaction it got him pulled out of gaza briefly and then sent back in because all of these legacy news organizations are trying to figure out was that appropriate you know how how do you move at that pace that's still very much a struggle Um, and as we've seen this collision i think in the past couple of months of Ebola, Ukraine, Iraq, Gaza, beheadings, and Mm -hmm. war scenes, um, David Carr of the New York Times said, um, if Vietnam brought war into our living rooms, the last few weeks have put it at our fingertips. And I think that's a very true thing, and we are living that and trying to figure out the challenges of that. So with news breaking on Facebook and on Twitter, as another person said, Twitter news becomes a series of straws that offer, a narrow, that offer narrow views of a bigger picture. We're not going to go back to living without those straws or those narrow views. The question is, you know, we know they can be manipulated. We know they can be, these views can be faked. We're trying to struggle with how we um, curate some of those things, but we're not going to be living without those. So the question is, how do you incorporate them How do you still have the big picture? How do you still have analysis? How do you stay a legacy news organization in that? But there's some positives. I mean, there's some challenges there, but I was so moved in some of the Ferguson coverage by how um, a community of color in this instance could tell their own story real time and start conversations all around the country with like-minded people, They could serve as their own personal witnesses to history and having actually been around for the civil rights movements and all of that it was a very moving thing whether no matter how you feel about the story or or where it went to see it real time playing out they were ahead of the cables uh, the, the people of that community by sharing by showing the pictures of the police um, And some of the stuff posted was wrong. Um, There was misinformation about the police officer involved. There was misidentification, some scary stuff. But watching it happen was a really interesting cultural thing uh, of of bearing witness to history, one person at a time. The Ray Rice video, just in the last 24 hours, there are some fascinating uh, emotional discussions today going on about domestic violence on Twitter, on other social media. Um, as a journalist, I have found it's amazing to tap into some of these discussions in in different communities, and there are a lot of survivors of domestic violence who are out there talking today. It's an interesting, fascinating thing going on for each of us to figure out. Then, how do you tap into it? What do you do with it? How do you sort through it? How how do you curate it? Again, it gets down to a lot of curation with with newspapers. Um, there was always an easy way as we look at news coming in around us every day to know the value or the importance of a story. You go to the front page. Then all of these legacy news organizations, we did our own websites. We did a home page so you could sort through this. But now we find more and more the people who are getting news from ABC are not coming in through our um, online in particular. They're not coming in through our home page. They're not typing in abcnews.com and getting an update they're coming in through side doors Hmm. they're coming in through as you know I think probably all of you you start to read a story you see the blue type you click Hmm. on that then you end up on this story you click on that now you're over here you may never go back to that story but that's how we get a growing escalating number of our people Hmm. and we are these big stories we do compete with the celebrity gossip, the the celebrity nude photos, the cute animal videos, the recipes—they compete with my over-posting friend who feels they need the need to write poetry every morning over the sunrise and show me the pictures. <laughs> you know, it, it, the, all of that is coming in. Depending on which streams, I, I don't. I think all of us here probably have different ways that we, different streams we look at for different reasons. But all of it's in competition and we still go out and we'll send you alerts about a breaking news story but we know that we're in competition like never before we're not just competing with NBC; we're competing with your friend in the sunrise <laughs> so God, <laughs> <hell>. <laughs> there are just so many interesting things happening in news organizations right now not not last year right now shifts in reporting power not just to individuals but we're seeing i mean it's all very very recent a place like buzzfeed which two years ago had half a dozen editorial staff is bumping up against 200. so they've come in with their lists and and different ways of reaching people and been wildly successful in saying you know what we'll throw in some serious reporting here ben smith was hired a while back they just hired recently a guardian reporter who will upgrade their foreign reporting. They've been on the ground in Liberia doing interesting work. Those news organizations are shifting. Um, Vice has been out doing some interesting and different reporting on the ground. Yahoo has hired the likes of Katie Couric for $6 million. (laughs) Meantime, newspapers can't figure out how to make a profit. <laughs> Matt Bai, uh, Olivier Knox, all kinds of people jumping into Yahoo's. The Yahoo Washington Bureau is, is based in our ABC News Bureau. And, you know, um, they have some Michael Isakoff, an investigative mm-hmm. reporter. The shifting in, going on in reporting powers is interesting. Bill Keller is now with the Marshall Project, which will be an interesting online effort, too. Reddits, AMAs, Ask Me Anything—all of these things are are competing and in a rapidly shifting universe. Um, one of the things uh, ABC partnered because of um, shifting demographics in the country with Univision to form a cable channel called Fusion. Fusion is uh, creeping along in access that people can get to it on cable but it's also growing some extraordinary ways as a you know this is not just a cable channel launch it's a news organization they just hired uh, i just read this a couple of within the last couple days tim pool from vice media tim is 28 known for cutting-edge reporting technologies and live streams he was live streaming ferguson occupy wall street was his He wasn't a journalist before that. He showed up, he started using his cell phone to live stream events there. It got into the mainstream very quickly. Um, He uses mobile, he's planning to use drones, should they be legal, some robotic equipment. Um, He's bringing a new type of reporting to something that launched very recently as a cable channel. So that's how quickly things are moving. Ezra Klein went from the Post to Fox Media. Mm So things are, are moving in that sense. Um, Facebook, and this is, these are the challenges, again, to mainstream media, Facebook reaches more Americans than any other social media site. And three-tenths of adults get at least some of their news while they're on Facebook. So partnerships. ABC just recently, for our Sunday show, launched a partnership with Facebook in which, you know, they're trending thing, where we they identify for us, what topics that are trending, we pick one of the top topics, we identify that on our Sunday show, and it becomes a roundtable topic. That's a crowdsourcing way to revolutionize what is a, you know, had been in the past a very stuffy Sunday morning show. The Texas Tribune surprised themselves with the enormous response when they did the live streaming of Wendy Davis's filibuster. Against the abortion measure. Uh, They ran a Kickstarter campaign, got their own equipment to do that in the future. Um, They're going to do that with political coverage. There will be many people doing the same thing with political coverage. NBC News has made significant investments in the whole uh, mobile video market, which is tantamount to saying, okay, we don't know how to do it, we're going to buy you, you know, or we're going to, they have a minority stake in Now This News, which does the little mini. Clips in 60, the, you know, Ukraine in 60 seconds type things. They've also invested in string wire. We use uh, organizations like Storyful, Data Miner to help us um, evaluate, validate, vet, curate video coming in from globally about breaking news. This is a again the fire hose. It's the and the the ability to fake stuff is very real and very scary to an organization like ABC. So we we need help and we are partnering and everybody's trying to figure out how to do that better. And what we have now is a what we call a social desk. And the social desk each of the shows we all do lots of social media stuff and as news gathering we're constantly looking all over social media as part of our news gathering but during a big storm like the uh, Oklahoma tornadoes, Hurricane Sandy, Ukraine, Ferguson, Boston Marathon, we activate a team, we pull them from all over the news organization and they are just in a deep deep dive in social media to see what's out there and to start the process of vetting it for accuracy or for context, which is incredibly challenging. And you know, this is it's just not for TV that we're doing it, but 6 and 10 U.S. adults now watch video online and about half of those watch news videos, so this is a big growth area. Not a big revenue growth area yet, unfortunately, but a big growth area. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we have focused on and are excited about, though, is this whole concept of individuals having more direct power and influence than ever before. And how do we harness that? How do we get to them? How do we stop the misinformation? and that's in the shifting um, landscape something that we're incredibly challenged by but as you look at those individuals and how we're tapping into that you also obviously know that the other side to that coin is the individuals with a very vested interest in their own topics or their own (coughs) political future their own campaigns also are doing the same thing and and then some Um, we Constantly, as a, as a journalist in Washington, there are discussions with all of the bureau chiefs, print, broadcast, digital, about whitehouse.gov, which is the White House's um, direct reach out to you, avoid the middlemen. Um, they, they live stream the president's remarks. They do sort of reports that look like, like a news report, the president's week, uh, news from the West Wing, things like that. Um, when the tourists came back to the White House uh, after the government shutdown, there was a live streaming camera watching the President and the First Lady greet the tourists coming back in. But there was no room for the uh, journalist cameras there. Now, they also, we fight with them daily about these issues. And it's, every White House, it just gets progressively more of a challenge um, and more of a daily battle. Hand out photos. You've never seen a photo of the President handed out by them a yawning board exhausted or weeping president (laughs) they are strangely good-looking in all photos Um, and and I always uh, joke with the press secretaries like it's just one step away from North Korea (laughs) but but you know what we're we're vigilant and I think it's a really important role of the press to continue (laughs) to be a a witness uh, on behalf of citizens because that individuals cannot get in there and I think we still have a very robust and very Possibly obnoxious press corps on this, on this front, with the campaign coming up. I think um, the ability to transmit digitally, each candidate will probably have their own network as such, live streaming their remarks, news reports, closed circle of information, things that look very much like a journalist did them, but are very much part of the campaign, and. Uh, If you think things can't be easily manipulated, a classic example that I've heard my fellow bureau chief at CNN use is that they did a lot of the Republican primary debates in the last cycle and they did instant polling and telephone, social media. Who won the debate? Ron Paul won everyone, Mm -hmm. And that's because they knew how to do it better. They knew how to manipulate it better. So all of these are the challenges. Uh, I think that we're facing as a legacy news organization and uh, are incredibly excited about, actually. Richard.
1: Thank you. What a great start to a discussion. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you a a hard question for a news supplier, which is not the question of supply, but the question of demand. You've Mm -hmm. outlined for us the fragmentation, the increase in variety, the velocity, and the volume of news opportunities, I guess Mm -hmm. you'd call them. Are, are, are Are you getting a feel for how the nature of audiences is changing? Who's seeking what news? What news stays with people? What circulates to create consensus in certain communities and what just flows... True is that, or is that not in that's the nature? Of of, yeah, that, that's a lot of different questions. Yeah, I know you were covering a lot of different ways in which news is proliferating right. as a it, it's, phenomenon.
2: You know, we do a lot of audience research, Okay. and there is no doubt that for our mainstream television programs, it's an aging audience. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how much we invigorate those programs, they're not bringing in to those appointment programs a new audience. Mm-hmm. So, but and i would say the older the audience the more they're attracted to the harder news mm-hmm. that's a little bit um of what we can see but okay. what sticks with them is is very harder hard time. we ha- we have changed the formats of the sunday shows not just ours <laughs> but all of them have changed considerably and there's a little more tape a, a little faster pace mm-hmm. and a lot of that's in in answer to for even older audiences how different it is in the way our brains process information Mm -hmm. and um, how impatient we get sometimes with a longer, slower Mm -hmm. format. Mm -hmm. So we have seen some change... So the
1: caffeination of news continues, right? The hypercaffeination.
2: Yes, that does continue. As far as topics go and what Mm -hmm. sticks, um, we're we're of the mind very much that it's a broader lens that people want from Mm -hmm. us. Um, and we get good feedback uh, on our public affairs show. Again, our Sunday show. We're not as focused on horse race politics <coughs> or on mm. just what John McCain thinks of every single <laughs> every single issue. I think the
1: answer is bomb them. I mean, <laughs> <John McCain laughs> <says. laughs>
2: but we're opening to new voices. Um, we're open to n- new definitions of what a of what public affairs is, and and is a um, a discussion about issues that are not before Congress but are important to people in states, okay. you know, things like that. Okay,
1: thank you. Let me take a student's question to start. Yes.
3: Hi, thank you very much. My name is Lisa Fitzpatrick. I'm a new career MPA student. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in uh, health, so health reporting, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts about the future of health reporting and health news. I'm, I tend to be very, with the health news that I see a good example is what's happening with Ebola right now. (coughs) There's a lot of information out there about Ebola, but very little in any regard to the optics of how we're reporting about Ebola, particularly related to the cures of the um, physicians that are coming home, Mm -hmm. and what about the people who don't have access to these cures that we don't really have, but the public doesn't understand. We have a responsibility to also report on that piece of it because we are we have far advanced technology in, in the health sector. So I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about Well,
2: we, we have Dr. Richard Besser at ABC who actually uh, ran the CDC for a while and who has been uh, in – Africa for us and has actually done some of that very reporting. But it's hit or miss what what organization is doing what in terms of mainstream. I think a lot there has been some very robust coverage of some of those issues in newspapers. I think in other cases you almost have to go look for it. Um, It does, you know, there are, with everything going on in the world right now that you can have a day where where a story like that just falls off the cliff and i think if as an individual when you want to go long and deep on a particular story you're going to in our, in the future and even now you're going to have to keep keep looking and searching and and trying to get people to identify you as somebody who wants to receive that information it's it involves a lot of work i do think in particular the case of the the white doctors who came back and got the um, serum vaccination, whatever it was, and it wasn't available, there was a – we did several stories on that. I think there is that news coverage, just hard in this fire hose to know where to find it. And I'm not sure I can point you to anything that would say that's the magic bullet on that. Yes.
4: I'm a mid-career MPA also and a local news reporter for the past eight Mm -hmm. years. And so in this Name digital now I'm sorry, Natalie Brand, in this digital age when attention spans are shorter than ever, how do you balance quality in-depth reporting with holding a viewer's attention? How do you make evening news still relevant when you know it's at the end of the day and people have seen those headlines?
2: Well, it's that is a struggle. And I think with if I take the the Sunday show experience and what we've done is yes in some cases shorten and and repackage and have a few more bells and whistles but the topics are still serious you know it's it's how do we get into the minds at the receiving end and still fulfill our obligation on those stories and i think we've seen that the audiences have actually grown when we do that so there's some incentive to to strike that balance of i've got to reach the mind you know i've got to go and get them where they'll, in the ways that they'll receive it, but I'm still, uh, you know, the obligation and what we want, our mandate, is to go and take that information there. But it's, it is changing.
1: Yes, over here. Uh,
3: uh, That's okay, (laughs) I can see you. My name is Marcus, and I'm a research assistant at the Graduate School of Business. Now, one thing that I was wondering is that, uh, I'm from Arkansas, so we kind of like, Sure. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that he said was in the, in the early days of national news organizations, when there was like CBS, NBC, and, uh, uh, ABC, CBS, and NBC, mm-hmm. there was enough. There were only three, pl- uh, three entities, so everybody had a piece of the market right. share, so news was like very thoroughly uh, investigated and reported. But in contemporary times, there's a lot more a lot more organizations that disseminate news and a lot of different ways to receive it. So my question is, I'm wondering how does, one, does ABC actively attempt to make sure they maintain their own pace and what method of dissemination of news. Or do you largely go with whatever technological advancements are taking place? And if it is the latter, how do you make sure you maintain your journalistic in the process?
2: Well, and I, uh, I go back that far. That, uh, <laughs> and that was, now, when I became bureau chief, there was also CNN, what, what had started. Um, but but prior to that, I go back even before CNN, and it, and we made a lot more money then. And that's a, significant, that's a significant thing here. We, there was never a question about whether we should go to this part of the world or that part of the world or do anything or have bureaus everywhere. Because we own such a significant portion of the market, we made a ton of money doing it. Now, what obviously, completely different challenges. And we still have probably almost the same number of hours of television news on maybe it's the the formats are different and we've tinkered with that but we're also realizing that as those shrink we're trying to grow in all the other places but it's it's just it's small it's you know not as deep and it's but it's broader and we'll we will try and find you but you know you have to want to be found too
1: um there's a student over here but i'm going to exercise the right of the chair to uh utilize my former dean waiver and ask Graham Allison to uh, ask his question.
5: Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Robin, for a great presentation. I'm a big fan of Robin and have been learning from her for a long time. So uh, uh, I think it's fantastic that somebody like you who are part of the previous generation of reporters is wrestling with the reality of the revolution Mm -hmm. as vividly as you are. So thanks thanks for the for the survey. And you're thinking about ABC's targeting its audience. Uh, Obviously, if you stratify the audience, there's some people who spend 11 hours a day tweeting around, Mm -hmm. and there's some people that spend none. There's some that spend, uh, you know, that are getting a flash, as you mentioned, every three minutes or every five minutes, and so they're distracted. There's some that are, biochemists uh, at the Harvard Medical School who are trying to find yeah. you know, some uh, uh, gene, and they're spending 12 hours working in their lab, don't even know what's happening. So how do you think about, your, and, and one of the things about the digital uh, audience is you can look and see who clicks, mm-hmm. and then sell particular ads to particular eyeballs, but as you think about it in terms of your news audience, you care about many different segments. Mm -hmm. So what is the segmentation of the audiences you're thinking about for ABC News? And what are the differences in terms of what you're providing?
2: (coughs) Well, there are are some significant differences. And if you, you know, we, and as I say, so deeply involved in our Sunday show. So I, I know that that's an older audience. I know we know which of our shows skews a little more female, which would be Good Morning America. And it's not that you program just to them because you, you're programming news, but you're also in Good Morning America programming lots of other things. And that you can skew toward that audience. But we don't want to leave any segment behind. So that gets into the, what are we live streaming about? Our, is, is um, uh, Take Jonathan Carl, who's our White House correspondent. I want him to be able to go on a Sunday show and give me in-depth, analytical information about what happened at the White House, what it means, why you should care. And so I have to have somebody who's able to do that as a correspondent. But that's not him locked up in his lab. He's also got to be tweeting all day. He's probably been on radio. He does a Yahoo show where he picks a particular topic that is in a way that is appealing to the Yahoo audience. He did a terrific thing with Nancy Pelosi where they went on her morning jog, and you know, it's a fast walk, and they did a little couple minutes of fast walk. I mean, you wouldn't put that on our Sunday show, but it, it means that a correspondent is a very different creature than when we hired Jim Wooten from the New York Times sure. because he wrote the most beautiful prose of any human being.
5: I can just, one small follow
2: So, but. Nonetheless, as you
5: think about your audiences, some of them matter a lot more than others.
2: And to some, advertisers, some that's matter true. from the
5: business point of view. Right. I want high wealth, high net worth people. Right. I don't care if the people that are watching are if they're not buying anything. I don't want to buy advertising. Right. Okay. But then there's also ABC's news of the you know sense of their history. Like we're trying to provide news to people that matter, or that that are part of the policy process or. That influence events, otherwise. right? And then there's a bunch of 11-year-old kids right. who give you large numbers, but you may or may not. Uh, so just have you all got it segmented to 97 different it, target know, audiences? When or? we
2: sit in our morning editorial meetings, we're not saying, "Well, we're not going to do that story because the 18 to 25-year-olds wouldn't like that." That that never happens. It, there's still an editorial sense of this is what's important to know, this is interesting, and the, the need to know, those are all still driving us, those key journalistic, you know, truisms. I mean, we, we still all feel those and believe those, whether we're the young, young people at ABC or the older people at ABC. There is that. But, you know, it's interesting when you talk about... I. Come long enough in the business that I know who we were sort of programming to in our mind. People like us, you know, people who want the news and all that. And then I lived through the, you know, it used to be you'd get, we called them the nutcase letters in the mail. Of, you know, on and on about the FBI is watching me, and why don't you do this story about me. and
1: Black helicopters.
2: And then suddenly it was thousands of emails that would say, I can remember a particular show that was so shocking to Sam Donaldson because he was the anchor of our Sunday show and was after 9-11. It was right after 9-11 and we had a government official on, I can't remember who it was, and Sam was, um, you know, drilling down on his questions the way he always did. and the emails that we got back from all around the country, all kinds of different people about how offensive it was to them in this atmosphere to ask those tough questions, you know, and and are you anti-government? I would say that this digital age has opened up and we're much more aware of all those other different audiences than we were to, in the days when our New York newsroom on Monday mornings, we would play a game then Washington, we try and figure out who did Roone Arlich have dinner with last night because that's the stories he was pushing. Are we
1: better off knowing that twenty percent of our audience believes in UFOs? Is that is that, is that helpful? Well, I, you know, it's a more informed
2: way to think about the news, and I it, it is definitely it's not so much business driven as it is we are we are in more contact with our audiences mm-hmm. now, and. Uh, and to see, it's interesting because right after 9-11, when the media were accused of sort of pulling the punches on, on the, the ramp up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, mm. that is also the period of time in which for the first time you were getting those complete feedback and pushback of are you anti-American, you know, the, the things that I think internally in news organizations, the, it felt like there was a wave of public opinion you didn't know was there. We're, we're actually we just weren't communicating with those people before. Mm. So but you
1: didn't get that in the late '60s with the no. ramp up of media criticism of, of Vietnam and LBJ. No,
2: Interesting. no. so and that mm-hmm. is happening more instantly. Cool. So if we do things that certain segments of the population don't want, oh boy, you, you hear it, it's <laughs> on Twitter. Like before, sometimes before you put push play, you get the feedback. So it's pretty
1: instant. I must say, the idea of jogging with Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Fast walk. Fast walk. Fast walk. Fast walk. I just, I mean, the image of sort of like a Martha Stewart cook-off with LBJ as the (laughs) guest (laughs) barbecue. (laughs) It got very big numbers on Yellowstone. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Back here and then here. So I'm actually not
4: a Kennedy School
1: student. Then let's go uh, up uh, uh, here uh, first and then come uh, back to you. Okay, go ahead, student.
5: Hi, my name is Joe Sacron and I'm a mid-career MPA student. And my question is related to uh, the type of research that organizations are doing in order to figure out what relates to people. So, you, Professor Parker had kind of asked that question, you mm-hmm. talked about audience polling. But can you elaborate <laughs> a little bit more on that? And then my second part of the question is related to negative news stories. Anecdotally, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I just don't watch the news anymore because yeah. there's so many negative stories.
2: Is there any truth to that? A <coughs> professor at Harvard last night just told me <laughs> that that, per- I will not say whether it's a he or she, that, that they did not like news anymore because it's just so horrible to watch. Really? And yeah. I think it's a um, that's just a, a factor of what these particular stories are right now. But in terms of research, this what I was alluding to there is the instant feedback, the constant, you know, it took us a while to realize that when you posted something, an online story on our abcnews.com, that the comments tended to be very negative And, you know, crazy, sometimes really crazy people who never had a chance to, <coughs> to publish their own thoughts were publishing. So we, we learned how to put some perspective on that. But now Twitter is an instant feedback. Um, we're slammed if we go too soft on the news. We're slammed when we do feel-good stories. Mm. We're slammed when we do too much negative news. So I think what we try and do with that is come up with a mix and have we, our morning meetings are filled with arguments for and against how we do that. And you know, for World News uh, tonight, our evening news show, it's a whole process of different people with different backgrounds talking about the stories, how they play off the story before it, where they go next. And I think recently we've come under a lot of criticism for being a little bit uh, too much news you can use, or how do you live your life better, or some things that you would consider uplifting. And if you, if you watch any of those evening news programs on any of the networks, uh, I think they're all doing the same things, to try and give people something that they can feel good about, because as you and I were talking about before, these negative, horrible, highly produced beheading videos coming in, and it's not like there were no beheadings before in the Middle East, throughout history. But we have access to things, and um, I guess it's maybe a little bit of human nature to share some accidents, and it's what makes you stop and look at an accident. There's a lot of negative stuff that we're exposed to now, and I, I think we're all sort of feeling that <clears throat> and trying to figure out how how you deal with it.
1: Because of the time, I'm going to let some non-students in as well, too.
0: Um, hi, Chris Russell. Hi. I, Bell, Chris yes. Um, as a longtime time print legacy uh, person, I, I guess I'm thinking about uh, both your emphasis on the audience as well as the production of news and the anecdote about jogging with uh, Nancy, how do you... Fast Fast (laughs) walking. Television in particular, broadcast news, has always had this challenge of the limited time in this so-called half hour, and now Mm -hmm. with digital and many other uh, ways to, to produce, how are you both balancing for these what celebrity reporters, if they're doing this kind of, of uh, news gathering, how you get the link between the faces and the information that's on television and the in-depth actual reporting behind those stories? Because from a time perspective, the White House reporter that's doing that and does not have time Mm -hmm. to actually be digging for the stories that are not uh, fed to some degree to them. That's always been a problem, but you now have this digital arm where you could be getting more information out if you had people actually employed to be digging that. So given the time problem, given the cutbacks in resources, given the digital arm, how do you see connecting the dots between those, and also not being too responsive to every tweet and right. comment?
2: Right, that that is a real challenge—not I mean, to be that's too a, responsive and, to and every your tweet And audience
0: comment. has time management problems too. But right, but in terms of what you're what you're giving to people, the value added mm-hmm. of the legacy media on the broadcast side—I mean, how are you connecting? No problem. Okay,
2: <laughs> well, it, it, it is a very difficult challenge. And uh, initially, when we sort of had our website, our, our our thought was that was a place where you could really go in-depth. Very, very little interest in that by any measure that we have. And much more so about what's happening now, what's happening now, what's happening now. So we're, we're tending to use the digital stuff as more, you know, we... We're moving, obviously, very much to video on mobile video, apps, digital, is much more of a now. And, and John Carl, back to the White House correspondent, he, he does the best sort of in-depth analytical thing he can on a day's news. And they'll use the Sunday show format to really dig a little deeper into that. So we have a mix of products, and I guess that's the best way to say it. There's no one-stop that there's no one shopping. Over here, and then here.
4: Hi, uh, my name is Will Whittles. I'm with uh, the Tobin Project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have a question I'm sure you get all the time, which is what, at the moment, do you see as the number one barrier to sort of high-quality investigative journalism? Is it money, which was raised earlier? And then the follow-up question, which is,
2: Well, something that's interesting when I talked about the shifting in reporting assets, there are a lot investigative reporting nonprofits, new efforts popping up all the time, and some of the digital, um, you know, for Yahoo to hire Michael Isikoff away from NBC News, I, there is an appetite for from the from the user, audience, consumer, whatever, for investigative reporting. All of the major news organizations still have serious investigative units. We have a a very robust unit in the Brian Ross group uh, at ABC, and Pierre Thomas does a lot of investigative reporting and and others. But, you know, it just is part of everything that's the financial struggle and what is the business model for whether it's a digital news organization, television, how much money you, you send to each of these different, you know, um, verticals in your news division, whether it's investigative or health or any of the other topics, is going to be driven by what's the appetite for it, how much money do we have, what are we taking it away from, and investigative still is doing pretty well. Uh, and and I think it's a growth business in journalism right now, and especially in the last year. Over um, here. My name
4: is...
3: Oh, uh, I was
2: there's somebody <laughs> you should meet down here. Yeah.
4: Okay. Uh, I was interested in um, your point about the administration being more close to um, mm-hmm. working with reporters. Right. Uh, so I have two, two questions on that. And sure. The first is um, uh, what do you think that journalists um, can and should do, and, and, um, and members of the administration can and should do to make sure that that's uh, come across? And then also, I feel like there's a cycle of people paying attention to things in Washington, um, and do you think that the Obama administration being more closed to the media is a product of that, or just um, happens to...?
2: Well, they are more closed than prior administrations, and as you would know, being a spokesperson, um, the there is a controlled message. and. Um, even to the extent that on a Sunday, like last Sunday when the President was going out, no other person in the government was allowed to be on a competing program because it would take away from the President. That kind of centralization and control is just a step past where some other administrations have gone. And as you know, you everything had to be channeled through the White House proper for healthcare.gov. I know that very, very, very well. Um, and I think in some ways, that was good for them, and in some ways it kind of blew up. Uh, It wasn't exactly an an uber successful PR message coming out of there. Um, So, And what was the last?
4: Um, So the cycling, um, or in
2: what? I think it's sort of a a response to how many inquiries are coming in, and how out of control information is, and how hard it is to respond to inaccuracies that pop up. I mean, there, it's a whack-a-mole world. And I, you probably, you know, we've got to put that fire out <laughs> and that fire out and that fire out. It's all of those news organizations, not just three networks. It's not just three networks and two cable channels. It's the entire universe of people wanting to put information out. I think that cyclically, the Obama administration has clamped down a little more because of that, wow, it's out of control
1: here. Hi, I'm Henry Chu. I'm a new fellow right now from oh, okay. the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and when I think of uh, sites like BuzzFeed or Vice, you know, mm-hmm. doing some of their own reporting going out to Liberia, um, some of which has been very good, but yeah.
3: um, you can also think of it being almost boutique reporting in that. Yeah. You know, they've, they've chosen something that they want to focus in on, right. and
0: they
1: do that one very well. Um, for a legacy organization like yours, like mine, do you that have competing interests or uh, try to be general interests. And not right. only do we do Liberia, you know, we're doing the Eurozone crisis, we're doing sports, City Hall, you You, know. you bundle everything, Exactly. Yeah. Now, do you see a viable future for us?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: not in the hands of Sam Zell.
2: <laughs> no, I, I actually do, because I think as we go further down this path and it becomes more overwhelming, there are some brands, to use that word, that stand for something. And I, I think it's just important to continue to stand for those values and that um, curation, bundling, whatever it is, and to, to be that, that that's what you do well. And um, so I, I think cyclically people will tend to go back to some of those brands if they're still there and can still afford to be in business.
1: Over here. Over here, you had a question. Um,
5: yeah. um, I'm Adam Green. I'm an independent uh, Twitter consultant. Okay. I appreciate your survey of social media, but there's a trend in the last couple of years that I'm curious mm-hmm. if you noticed. It's a shift away from narrative to gestalt. There is, I mean, they were called news stories for a reason they have a come And in 2012, the Obama campaign did an excellent job of creating a narrative about mm-hmm. Romney. But recent news events like, Ferguson or Gaza, were more just random things. Mm-hmm. The, the um, kids on the beach, pictures of people with their hands up, but very little story
2: yeah. there. Well, I- yeah, and, and, and Twitter is a tool. It's not a, you know, it's a, it's a platform. It's not really driving narratives, but I do think, and maybe it's, the nature of the very stories we've been seeing it has been more emotionally driven or and maybe maybe may that i haven't really thought about that too much but um it'll be interesting to see in the 2016 campaign how the social media is used by uh the candidates in the back
5: okay. i'm steve bergard the school journalism mm-hmm. can you talk to us a little bit about the decision to split off the chief anchor? position
1: from the nightly sure. news uh, was that strategic or was it, it had to do with the gravitas of the individuals? Exactly
2: the the oh okay okay and this um what this is about is that abc news uh, when diane sawyer traditionally the evening news anchor has been the chief anchor for the network so that means in a 9-11 <coughs> on an election night for the state of the union address for the major events of our times that is the anchor person you will see and it's it's a combination of those two things in particular george stephanopoulos um, for abc was the anchor of good morning america a show that has uh earns most of the money for the news division he has a very important role there he has already been sort of backup to diane all along but that show is so important to the network, n- nobody wanted to move him to the evening news. And the evening news has become l- less relevant in terms of being the showcase for our network. So it was a little bit driven by both. Um, I don't think the next round of evening news anchors will be the same stature uh, of you know, Walter Cronkite of the past. I think we've seen a diminishment of the stature of those, and, um, and also it played very much to George's strengths. He has um, been our, an anchor for the Osama Bin Ladenite, for he is the, really has become the voice of ABC News, regardless of where he's sitting. So it doesn't speak to anything broader than those two things.
1: We're coming up on 1 o'clock, and so I'm going to call a halt to the questions. I would like to thank Robin uh, for this extraordinary.